podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. And welcome to Erdogasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In previous episodes, we charted Bottomley's account of how modernity developed its beliefs about work and how those beliefs have become an ideology sustaining the division in human life between the private realm of emotions and feelings and the public realm of work. Subsequently, we examine Bottomley's contention that it is in the silencing of the victims of this division of human life that we can discern a clue about the real relationship between work and humanity precisely because that silence discloses what is hidden within modernity's claims about individual and social progress. In this episode, we begin the exploration of Bottomley's response to the reality of work-related harm and the ideology of hard work by which the victims of work-related harm are silenced. For Bottomley, that response is contained within a prophetic ministry whose function is not merely to critique the structures of injustice and oppression at work, but also to listen and give voice to those who suffer under this tyranny. So, without any further ado, let us now begin Ergasia episode 21, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, part 3, The Foundation of Prophetic Ministry, Listening with a Pastoral Heart. Bottomley begins by restating one of the core arguments of his book, that the belief system of modernity, the ideology of hard work, functions as a mechanism to sideline and silence the justice claims of those who have suffered harm at work. In doing so, it creates a society in which prophetic critique is absent, a critique that not only cries out against the injustice of work-related harm, but which serves to articulate a counter-narrative to the prevailing ideology sustaining modernity's beliefs about work. In this context, Bottomley draws on the work of the theologian Walter Brueggemann to describe what such a society looks like. A society without a prophetic voice is one which is, firstly, dominated by the economics of affluence, and in which wealth serves as a kind of anesthesia dulling people to the pain of others. Secondly, it is marked by a prevailing politics of oppression, one that ignores the suffering of injustice by stigmatizing its victims and mobilizing social sentiment against them. 
Thirdly, it is controlled by a religion of nearness, one which declares God's blessing on our desires and which recasts issues of God's judgment and absence as psychological or existential problems to be solved by human willpower alone. This is the society which bottomly argues modernity's ideology of hard work has created. And within the context of this socio-ideological framework, the church's ministry of pastoral care has largely been co-opted to the point where pastoral care has simply become another opiate, either numbing people to suffering or else reduced to a weak pragmatism that does nothing more than help them survive within the system by which they are oppressed. In response to this reality, in 1985, Bottomley began working with a group of long-term injured workers in order to develop a companioning pastoral care model for those who had experienced work-related harm. This occurred during a period in which support groups were a flourishing social enterprise. The group Bottomley created was one of at least six such groups for long-term injured workers within the state of Victoria. In 1988, the church agency to which Bottomley was attached conducted a literature review of the role of support groups as a preventative measure within the sphere of community mental health. The books, articles and reports that were the subject of this review were drawn from the fields of sociology, psychology and medicine. No theological or pastoral care texts were included. From this review, three assumptions about support groups were identified. Firstly, that participants who chose to join such groups did so because they were seeking assistance with a common problem or issue. Secondly, that redress for these issues and problems would in part be achieved through the sharing of personal experiences and the development of resources to meet the needs identified by this experience. Thirdly, the members of the support group would control its program and activities rather than being led or directed by external professionals. Bottomley records that under the prevailing conditions, these assumptions proved reasonably robust in developing the support group's program to provide pastoral care for long-term injured workers. However, these conditions changed dramatically in 1992 when a newly elected Conservative state government slashed funding for injured workers' support groups. Within a short period, only one program, which was independently supported by a trade union, was still operating. Bottomley notes, however, that despite these experiences, the assumptions identified by the earlier literature review nonetheless underpinned the establishment in 1996 of a new support group for families traumatised by workplace harm or an, in or an industrial death. This new group was established by Bottomley in conjunction with a woman whose father had been killed in a workplace accident. After several meetings between Bottomley and the woman, whom he pseudonymously refers to as Tanya, to discuss the formation of the group, facilities were booked and advertising for the group was circulated. Tanya, however, proved reticent to speak about her experiences, so Bottomley agreed to facilitate the support group meetings. 
he concedes that in doing so, he participated with Tanya in abandoning one of the key assumptions of the literature review, namely that support groups should be self-directed, not steered or shepherded by external experts. It was at this point that Bottomley says the law of unintended consequences came into effect. Bottomley and the church agency to which he was attached ceased playing a support role for the group's participants and instead became de facto leaders of the group. This created friction around the issue of how the support group was controlled, friction that was largely underground but which later emerged into open dispute. Secondly, by becoming the de facto leaders of the group, Bottomley and the church agency became implicitly responsible for the group's funding and resourcing, and the issue of funding later emerged as one of the key areas of contention. Thirdly, as a de facto expert who was leading the group, Bottomley was effectively alienated from other group participants precisely because he wasn't there to grieve an experience of work-related harm and share that experience with other group members. In effect, there was no solidarity between Bottomley and the other participants. The subterranean tensions created by these unintended consequences started emerging into the open when it became clear that there was a difference between Tanya's vision for the group and Bottomley's and the church agency's understanding of the group's role and purpose. Tanya preferred not to share her grief about her father's death at group meetings, instead insisting on political action in order to change the system. Other group members found this an attractive trait, admiring Tanya as a strong and brave person who had overcome trauma through a commitment to social justice activism. As a consequence, in 1998, Tanya decided to leave the group and found her own organisation. In the process, the majority of the group's members also decided to leave and join with Tanya. The shock and grief caused by this split was both substantial and long-lasting. A small number of people chose to remain with the original program, but the suddenness and completeness of the departure of Tanya and her supporters left abiding feelings of despair with Bottomley and the ongoing participants. Over time, however, Bottomley discovered that his practice of regular scriptural meditation brought him to two restorative moments. The first was a moment of judgment, when Bottomley sensed that God was revealing to him how much he had become a captive to his own concern for his reputation as a minister and as a successful champion of justice. But as he wrestled with this realisation, Bottomley came to understand that a lot of what he had been doing didn't have much to do with justice. Rather, it was motivated by an unresolved bitterness directed at other organisations and individuals. How to heal the wounds of injustice and relate to other parties caught up in the ideology of hard work, re-emerged for him as a fresh challenge. The second moment came as a revelation to Bottomley of how his formation as a man had separated him from his own feelings and sense of hurt. In just the same way that he had identified 
how modernity had divided human life into public and private spheres, so Bottomley realized that his own captivity to modernity, created through the formation of his masculine identity, had cut him off from his own emotional landscape. Bottomley was able to identify a number of instances prior to Tanya's breakaway in which he felt uncomfortable about the direction events were taking and his own participation in that process. But he ignored these feelings, justifying this decision on the basis that the feelings of the injured workers he was supporting spoke to a deeper truth than his own feelings of disquiet. In this realization, he located God's grief about Bottomley's denial of his own feelings by embracing God's sadness at his captivity to the ideologies of modernity and masculine formation. Bottomley was able to give weight to his own experience of injustice. The experience of God's solidarity modeled how feelings invoked by injustice renewed Bottomley's solidarity with others. This, for Bottomley, was the beginning of his understanding of what restorative justice entails, starting with the righteous grief of God, which sorrows over the ways in which the ideologies of modernity blind us to our own sadness. We are enlightened to our captivity and brought to an understanding of the need for repentance for a new direction. Through this experience, we are able in turn to experience God's forgiveness for our withdrawal into self-justifying beliefs and practices. God's judgment makes us vulnerable to painful questions and sharp truths. God's forgiveness opens us to release from the burden of our self-deception and folly. This experience of hurt, judgment, repentance and restoration became for Bottomley the starting point of his call into prophetic ministry. This ministry begins with listening to the voice of grief denied by the oppressive powers of justice and which understands that this voice is the most profound insight into the, into the structures and beliefs that cause harm and suffering. Prophetic ministry starts and ends with a heart that can listen to sorrow. Emerging from this difficult experience, Bottomley realized that the language, perspective, and prayerful practices of his faith spoke to the reality of humiliation, shame, and failure in ways of which the support group model was incapable and in fact would never be capable. The secular literature of psychology, sociology, and medicine were silent about the dark terrain of the human heart. Only the rekindling of Bottomley's faith in God's goodness enabled him to reimagine what the future of a support program for the victims of work-related harm might look like. The community development assumptions drawn from the social sciences upon which Bottomley's work to that point had been based were inadequate to the task of addressing the pain caused by conflict over the program's identity and purpose. In fact, the illusions of power and agency to which these assumptions gave rise only served to mask the underlying pain of work-related trauma with which the program's participants were struggling.
the experience of this traumatic upheaval and the insights into healing, justice and restoration to which it gave rise formed the foundation for the model of companioning pastoral care which Bottomley was subsequently to develop. The common thread in this process was the understanding of how God's grace integrates professional knowledge about death and grief with our human experiences of these realities in order to reform and re-equip us for the task of prophetic ministry and pastoral care. that's where we leave today's episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will continue our exploration of Bottomley's development of the companioning pastoral care model and its response to the process by which the idolatry of hard work creates and silences victims. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.